Good morning, good afternoon. This is David Robert for the Marketplace of Ideas podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful and beautiful start to your November. We are here having a great time, as the kids say, rocking and rolling, living it up. Just before we get started, I want to let you know that you can find the Marketplace of Ideas podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, you name it, we are here for your enjoyment. Um, so yeah, uh, actually, I, I take that back. You can't, you cannot get us at Stitcher because as of August the first, they shut down. So anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. We are there, and yeah, look for us. We got a lot of good stuff. And um, with no further ado, we're gonna get started on today's topic, which is something that I want to say has been on my mind for quite some time, but I I didn't record, um, I didn't record about this topic because of, because I wanted to get all my facts straight, all my ducks in a row. Um, if you hear me wincing a little bit, I threw my back out today, so I'm just here in the basement studio, uh, you know, trying to limber up a little bit, so it feels a little bit kind of stiff, but nonetheless, um, today we're going to be chatting about the right to repair, or more importantly, the right to fix things, and the reason I I, I was hesitant to talk about this is because for a lot of people my age, my vintage, as it were, 40 and up, we remember a time when you could go to a Radio Shack or a part source to get parts to fix your appliances or your car. So let me back up a little bit. In the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, it was very apparent that if you bought something, you wanted it to last for as long as it, po- as it possibly could go. And the era that I grew up in, I was born in the late, late, late 70s, uh, 79, and when I was coming of age, it wasn't uncommon to see on the weekends guys who worked in construction or people who were the car guys working on their bikes or their cars or their mode of transportation. It wasn't uncommon to see people right after work, get in the garage, get under the hood of their car or under the, under their bike or fixing up the old TV or the radio or whatever the case was. And if you wanted to get parts to fix your, you know, your appliances or your property or whatever you owned, there were places that facilitated that, such as Radio Shack and Part Source and other places, where if you needed to repair a alternator or repair a battery or change out a spark plug or replace your headlights or your or your brake pads or your tires, get fix a flat tire. It wasn't uncommon to see people doing that on the weekends and after work. And it was a time period where it was well known that you wanted your stuff to last as long as humanly possible. I remember when my family moved from the house I, I was kind of born in to the second house we, we lived in on the, in the Castle Dan's area of, of Edmonton. I remember us moving with our fridge and our stove and our deep freeze. And that's something nobody nobody does now. I mean, that's just insane. But before it wasn't uncommon to do that. And we were moving to the 
a new house, probably the only new house I'll ever live in. But it was a big accomplishment for my dad and my mother coming from the Caribbean and being able to say, hey, you know, we've worked for X amount of years and we can now, we have a home, you know. And so they moved into this place, just beautiful home, still to this day, my dad lives there since mom passed and it's still a great house. But a lot of things in that house were fixed by my dad or my mom would help or and if something broke, you'd try to fix it. The fence was down, you'd try to put it back up. The deck needed repairing, you'd handle that. Uh, the fridge needed, you know, a new coil or something. The stove needed new burners. Um, you'd replace your faucets. You'd replace parts out of your dishwasher. It wasn't uncommon to see people working on their old TVs, the old tube-type TVs that not L... We didn't have the flat screens back in the day, you know. And then as technology sort of advanced, we would get even more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I would say we would get a lot more ingenuity in how to keep our stuff going from computers to PCs. I remember my friends and I, when I worked at uh, various jobs, we would just get all of the computers that were being thrown out and we'd piece together, we'd jerry rig various, um, PC units, we'd take the hard drive out of this one, we'd take the CPU out of this one, we'd take a monitor from this, we'd take a mouse from that one. And it created this attitude of almost, I don't want to say entrepreneurship, but almost this feeling of you could, if you had enough ingenuity and you had enough, you know, gumption and know-how, you could put together a lot of stuff and keep things going and I don't know, almost get to get in the in the guts on the inside of what you were watching because what you were looking at, what you were using. And it was such a wonderful time to be alive because I had a cousin who would have DJ battles and he'd build his own speakers. He would go to Radio Shack and get the parts, put them all together. You could get your manuals from the library or from Radio Shack and I still remember I don't know if I still have it, but there was a manual that he gave me on how to build speakers. You know, these huge, amazing floor units. And it was just so incredible to have that sort of skill set. And if even if you look at such genres such as hip-hop or, or punk or rock or country, just the idea of putting something together and if your woofer, your subwoofers blow, you can try to fix them, your guitar, your drum kits. But we're losing that. And in an article that I'm going to read in a little bit, I was doing some research for this there's been a huge fight within the last couple of years, and it started actually, surprisingly enough, or maybe not surprisingly enough, in the farming industry, in the agricultural sector. And as we've seen technology advance and get more and more complex, a lot more compact, a lot more smaller, it's become a lot harder to fix. You know, a lot of places such as Apple and uh, Google that have their own phones that they put out are using smaller and smaller chips, smaller and smaller CPUs, and and we're just not able to get in there and get our hands dirty and you know mix it up a little bit. Especially, and even you look at cars in particular. Right now, if if things are going the way I think they are in the next ten to fifteen, twenty years, I sincerely doubt we'll see people uh, taking the weekends. And their long weekends and their afternoons to try and fix what they own. There's a movement within the United States and in Canada and other G7 countries where they want you 
to continually pay for something you've already bought. So in the case of you purchasing a vehicle, if it's a very high tech um, sort of like vehicle like a Tesla, they'll, a lot of the bells and whistles you'll have to continue to pay for even after the car is, is already covered. After you've already paid the full bill for it, you still might have to pay for things such as radios or um, heated seats or things, of, things that we just thought would be second nature. And it, it kind of got me thinking because today I had to get rid of my, my, uh, my, my vehicle, my Ford Taurus, 2006 Ford Taurus with 182,000 kilometers on it. It just gave out. And what happened about five, four or five months earlier, my wife was driving the car and it had this habit of revving up and it wouldn't, it was very stopped hard to stop the car. It happened to me a few times in the winter and it got to the point where after really some deep contemplation, I started thinking, thank God no one was hurt. I wasn't hurt. My wife or the kids or anybody else. But you start to just think that at some point you have to, we got to advance. We got to move forward. We got to upgrade. And that could be scary. And so in getting rid of my car, I feel like that was the last of the the generational vehicles that we could really get underneath and, and, and work with. And it's going to get to the point where it's going to be like a legacy thing where people like they have VHSs and VCR machines, but they're not really things that people utilize out outside of just a nostalgic sort of hit, you know, a sort of feeling of, ah, I remember back in the day or cause I mean, people do sell tape decks and older technologies, but it's more for, nostalgia. It's not for actual practical use on an everyday sort of basis. You use your PC or your Mac for your everyday work, but you might have the old school Dell computer kick it at home just, you know, to play some old PC box games on it. And in getting rid of my vehicle and getting rid of my car, I realized that there may come a time where I won't be able to fix my car because it will just be so advanced. I'll either need an engineering degree, along with that I'll need to have the right equipment, specialized equipment to you know, diagno diagnose and work with my, my car to actually be able to fix it. And so back to what I was saying about farming, there was an interesting documentary or a short doc I saw about five years ago or so where there was a discussion about farmers in rural America that were having to take um, pirated software from Russian as well as China as, as well as uh, Japan to get into their own tractors because the John Deere tractors are so technologically advanced now they have sensors everywhere um, they have all sorts of um, GPS on them. There's all this crazy stuff that's in it to make it work. And so gone are the days of the old school red tractors that you could run forever and just break it apart and put it back together. These are sophisticated pieces of agricultural machinery. And because of that, John Deere holds the right, as they, they own the patent to many of their pieces of equipment, to hold the right to repair it. Now, the rub is, unfortunately, if you're a farmer or if you are somebody who works, you know, apple crops or, you know, you're planting wheat or canola, you can't afford to bring your vehicle into town, put it on a flatbed, bring it in, have somebody fix it, bring it back every time something breaks down. If you do that, 
you might as well just, you know, throw up shop right now. And so what these farmers have been doing is they've been lobbying um, to the, to, um, to the um, I guess, to Congress to pass bills to say, hey, we need to have the right to repair what we buy. That if we purchase a car, purchase a tractor, purchase a combine, purchase a piece of farming equipment that is utilizing, um, that they're utilizing for their operations on their farms, they have to have the, the ability to purchase equipment, purchase the tools, purchase the computer systems to actually service what they purchased. But companies like John Deere, like Apple, um, what's another technology company? Uh, tel- tel- Tesla. They all want to have you continue to keep paying. And so in this article I'm going to read here, it's really interesting. It came about, but uh, just let me look. Just let me quickly bring it up here. There we go. So this came up. Ah, NPR. There we go. This was this was just earlier this year. So John Deere vows to open up its tractor tech, but right to repair backers have doubts. So this was written on January the 10th of this year, 2023, at 5 p.m. Uh, 5 a.m. Sorry, by Joe Hernandez. So Joe Hernandez wrote this for NPR, which is nat- National uh, Public Radio in the states. And it starts off by saying, like many parts of modern life, tractors have gone high tech, often running on advanced computer systems. But some manufacturers are tight-lipped about how these electronics work, making it difficult or nearly impossible for farmers and independent repair shops to diagnose and fix problems within the, with the equipment. An agreement by John Deere may finally give farmers a greater hand in repairing the company's products. The American Farm Bureau Federation announced Sunday that it had reached a uh, memorandum of understanding with John Deere, promising farmers an independent repair shop inf- information they would need to service the company's equipment. Let's see here. The company said the agreement reaffirms the long-standing commitment Deere has made to ensure our customers have the diagnostic tools and information they need to make many repairs to their machines. But some in the agricultural field worry that the latest agreements don't, doesn't go far enough and is, veiled, and is a veiled attempt to stave off the passage of right-to-repair legislation at the federal and state levels. There's no commitment from anyone to enforce it, Walter um, Switchsire, president of the Montana Farmers Unions, told NPR. Switch, uh, Switchshire, a third-generation farmer and rancher, questioned why John Deere would reach a private agreement and point to a provision that allows the company to pull out of the memorandum if any right-to-repair legislation is enacted. If they truly honestly wanted to give farmers and ranchers and independent repair shops the right to repair equipment, why are they so afraid of legislation that authorizes that, he said. The deal comes after years of pressure from farmers and right-to-repair advocates urging John Deere to make it easier to identify and repair problems with his popular yellow and green tractors and farm equipment. Uh, John Deere says it wants to empower customers to repair their products. Now, under the Memorandum of Understanding, farmers and independent repair shops will be able to buy access to John Deere software, manuals, and other information needed to service their equipment. Previously, farmers generally had to wait for technicians from the company and authorized repair shops for fixes. 
The Federation and John Deere have also agreed to meet at least twice a year to discuss any issues related to the deal. Sam Kiefer, the American Farm, uh, Farm Bureau Federation's vice president of public policy, told NPR that the group preferred to reach a private agreement with the company. Our members asked us to pursue a private sector agreement, and our members wanted to avoid a patchwork quilt of different rules across state lines, recognizing that manufacturers, not just deer, but manufacturers in general, will, be, will need to be operating at the national level, even internationally. The Federation agreed to encourage state farmer, farm bureaus to refrain from introducing, promoting, or supporting federal or state right-to-repair legislation that imposes obligations beyond the commitment in its MOU. Under the agreement, John Deere can also protect its trade secrets and bar users from overriding safety features in its equipment. And so it goes on to talk more and more about what's going on with the farmers in the States. But that's just a little bit of a taste of the iceberg when it comes to agriculture. Because on the one hand, John Deere wants to say, okay, if we let you go in there and tinker around and play around with some of our sophisticated equipment, you could, being somebody who's not authorized to use this equipment cause real harm to somebody riding the tractor. It could set on fire, it could blow up, it could malfunction, leading to injury or worse to the farmer or people surrounding the machinery. And I think that is, that's a very valid point because if you look at Tesla, the um, technological company run by Elon Musk that creates cars and trucks and works with SpaceX and all this other stuff, there is a feeling that if you're not authorized and if you don't know really what you're doing with a lot of this equipment, that it could be very easy to hurt yourself. And that, that there, there is some truth to that. And so I think one way around that would be to have tutorials and to make sure that if you're purchasing some of this equipment, that there's, just like any major car, there's, there's things that you should be able to do with it. So repairing a light bulb in your, you know, in your front headlights, replacing a battery. Now, granted, the ones in Tesla, I believe, are quite heavy and quite, um, quite complex, so you don't want to blow yourself up. But what you need to realize is that there will be people who won't have the ability or even the, the, the finances to continually bring it back to a place where they have to travel X amount of X amount of kilometers just to get to. I don't know about you, where you live, but I know for myself, I don't see a lot of Tesla dealerships around where I live. So if you have one of those vehicles and it can only be serviced by a Tesla technician, that's time off of work. That's time traveling to get it there and back. And it's just a hassle. And so if we can get a lot more certified technicians within the area where they sell these products, I think that would definitely help. And that goes for everywhere from, you know, America to Canada, but when we look at other aspects of the right to repair, when we talk about uh, the right to repair with tech, we got another article here. It's almost the same thing, and so uh, they this was on Global News on May the thirteenth, twenty twenty three. The movement's goal is to make repair more accessible and affordable by forcing manufacturers to provide information, diagnostics, tools, and parts to everyone. This, in turn, would bring back local repair shops and allow consumers to hold onto their devices longer, benefiting the environment and the technology. So these are some of the arguments that people are making in favor of right to repair. So just look this up here. So this was an article that was written by Christia 
Hesse on Global News on May the 13th, 2023. And it basically claims that um, a gentleman by the name of John Fillade claims he can fix anything that plugs in. The inside of his shop, American Electronics, is a testament to that. The walls are lined with radios from the 1930s, speakers, VCR players, and desktop computers. On this day, parts from a record player from the 40s and a Sony CD stereo system sit side by side on his work table. The generational knowledge passed down from his father, paired with a formal engineering uh, engineering degree of training, should have been everything uh, Fidel needed to carry on the family trade. But to repair today's devices, it's no longer enough to know how to analyze circuits and locate faults. Technicians must become online sleuths. Rather than searching... For clues to a crime, though, they're on the hunt for replacement parts. Once the unit becomes out of warranty, basically it's up to the customer and good luck. So people enter his Toronto storefront on Dundas Street West, hoping he'll be able to find a way to fix their beloved device. Once he's figured out the problem, the chase begins. It starts with emails to manufacturers that often go unanswered and devolves into phone tag with local warehousing companies to see if they have the specific parts he needs. If that fails, Fidel will track down the original product maker somewhere in Asia to see if it will sell the part to him. Excuse me. Uh, In doing so, I've had success, he says, but the headache doesn't end there. These companies only sell in bulk, and it'll take a few months before it arrives at his shop in Toronto. The runaround that they put us through is absolutely crazy. Um, John's father, Frank Fidel, opened the shop in 1973. In, in the 50 years the shop has been open, they've witnessed a slow decline of the trade. As a child, John rode his bike to factories to pick up parts for his father. But as, a techno- as technology advanced and moved offshore, the industry began to change. First, we were, first to go were service desks, then repair manuals. Eventually, individual parts became scarce. Everything slowly became assembles. Uh, assembles. Uh, Fidel says, you had to basically buy half of the product because we couldn't get the one, uh, the one gear, one lever. It just snowballed. Fidel wouldn't mind that so much if it were affordable. He regularly gets quotes for assembles that are more than three, price, uh, three quarters the price of the product. It just doesn't make sense, he said. The system that allowed aftermarket businesses like this to thrive was crumbling. Fidel watched as older technicians threw in the towel and closed shop. All the little service places that were around one by one, they all disappeared. Fidel doesn't know what will become of the family business if his son doesn't take over. The business is doing well, but the daily hunt for basic parts has taken a toll. Granted, I'm still going strong, but I'm finding it harder and harder day after day. Um, And then the article goes on to say that increasingly electronics and appliances are made with... uh, uh, What is that word? Proprietary parts, controlled exclusively by the manufacturers through copyright, trademarks, and patents. So companies may use them to gain a competitive edge, but when they don't make these parts available to third parties, repairs become all but impossible. And that's something that is very troubling, because your average iPhone, if you buy it without a plan, will run you about 700 800 bucks for, you know, a relatively run-of-the-mill one. The newest one will probably a thousand and up. And so you'll purchase this phone and it'll break for sure. It'll, you know, you might drop it and crack your screen like I did with my phone recently. And for the most part, most places you can go and get the screen kind of fixed. But if it's not a registered, like actual place where you can go and, and get it done, 
then what you're looking at is having to spend money at a licensed Apple or um, Google Pixel phone place or an LG phone or whatever you're kind of using. And because of that, now you're, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because you're like, yeah, I want to get my phone fixed. But if it costs more to fix it than it does to cost to get a new one, most people will just get the new one, get a warranty on it, maybe get a, another two-year phone plan and you're bing, bang, boom, you're good to go. So it leaves you in a place where there's more waste, there's more e-waste than ever before. A lot of that is not being put to um, places where it's going to get actually recycled properly. It just might end up in the dump, causing even more chemicals to get spilled into our aquifer and things of that nature. And it's also causing this real tension between customers and companies, between people who buy a product and want to have ownership of it, autonomy with it, that you've purchased this phone or this car or this piece of tech, and it's yours. And the idea that you should continue to keep paying for it is something that came straight out of the growth mindset of Wall Street and, you know, the stock market, where it's all about the next quarter and how can we squeeze even more money out of our clients, out of the people that purchase our products. But there's also, I feel, and this might make me seem like, you know, an old man, get off my lawn kind of thing, but it feels like we're losing a part of the independent spirit, that feeling that, hey, you don't have to continually be used by a corporation or a company, that when you buy something, it's yours, and you could decide damn well what you want to do with it. If you want to blow it up, if you want to alter it, if you want to modify it. And to be fair, we've seen, excuse me, we've seen the dangers of modification when it comes to, say, Nerf guns. There's actually um, disclaimers on airsoft guns and Nerf guns that they ask that it is prohibited to actually alter them in any way to make them more powerful because it could cause real harm. On the show Pimp My Rides, which was exhibits... One of his career killers for his rap career on MTV, he had a show uh, exhibit. It was a 90s era hip hop star that sound, that was with Loud Records back in the day, owned by Steve Rifkind. And he put out some really good music. He had a bit of a moment there where he could have gone with Dr. Dre and Eminem, but that's a whole other podcast. Anyways, he had a show called Pimp My Ride. And there was this group, a custom uh, car group out of L.A., I believe it was LA and they would pimp people's rides. They would pimp them out. They deck them with, with all the latest tech and gear and tires and you name it. And unfortunately what would happen is a lot of the stuff that they were doing to these vehicles, it wasn't, they weren't street worthy. So what it meant was even though they were flashy and everything else, they weren't Legally, you couldn't even insure these cars to get on the road because they'd been altered so much. They were a safety hazard. If you had lowered a car to the point where it couldn't go over speed bumps, or you lifted a car so much that it could topple over, or you added too much power to a, I, I hope I'm saying this right, to a chassis that just couldn't handle the power. Like if you put like the power of, of like a big truck in a small little Prius or a Honda, it can't handle that type of power, it would blow up, cause issues with uh, fire and 
and you could definitely see people getting harmed. So the show, in a sense, kind of showed us what happened when we don't adhere to the manufacturing rules and we just go off all half, half cock, you know, all crazy. And so I think there has to, there has to be a, a kind of agreement between the consumer and the producer, between the manufacturer and the client, where the reality of it is, is that we're going to be needing more and more technology that's more advanced, that's 5G, now it'll be 10G, we'll need HG, H, HD and 5G um, devices in our pockets that will tell us when we're ovulating, when we're, you know, when when you're the best time to have a baby, what's the weather going to be like 10 years from now, like, the technology is going to get crazy. And with AI and... Um, artificial um, everything from, you know, chat GPT to the fact that our computers do more for us now than ever before, where in the event that there is a blackout, our, com- our computers and our phones are almost the, the equivalent of our other, of another arm, really. For a lot of people, they cannot make a living without technology. And so we need more and more powerful technology. We need more and more reliable technology, which also brings into question how we, you know, where that material is coming from. You know, the battery in my phone is from cobalt, if I'm not mistaken, and lithium. And those are mined from some of the most draconian places you can imagine that are run by companies and corporations that don't care about the natives there, particularly in the Congo, where you have children mining in these carcinogenic areas, carrying babies on their backs with no oversight. And it's a real problem. And so, I mean, that's a whole other podcast in and of itself, but the fact that we have this technology that we're more and more reliant upon, and the more and more we're reliant upon it, we use it on a daily basis that it's going to get chips, it's going to get cracked, it's going to become broken. And if we don't have the ability and the know-how to go in there and fix what is going on and we just throw it in the in the dump and we just replace it, it's going to it's going to lead to a real big problem. And we're already seeing right now. And I think also the last thing I wanted to mention was just this feeling of helplessness almost. You know, there's there's this feeling that you get when you can fix something on your own. There's this this sense of pride that you you receive when like your headlight blows out on your car. And you're like, "Okay, you know what? I think I could fix this. Let me head down to Part Source, Canadian Tire, um if I guess if you're in the states, it would be maybe like a Walmart or a well, Part Source. I don't know what they got over there, but You'd go in and you'd get your part, you know, you'd check your diagnostic to see what's going on. Like, oh, I need a spark plug. Oh, the battery's dead. Oh, man, I'll just change the tire out. Oh, you know, we got to change my brake pads. On an old car, the vehicles that I grew up with, there was about 10 to 15, maybe even 20 things you could do by yourself. And if you knew a guy who was a retired uh, mechanic or you knew a girl that was... um, really into cars, you guys could get together on a weekend, 
you know, maybe afterwards share a pizza, some beer, whatever, and get in there and just, just fix whatever needed to be fixed. And you could literally build your own vehicle. I, I've had friends growing up in high school that, that would do that. They were known as the car guys. And the high school that I went to was known for their auto mechanics and their automotives. And plenty of guys went from there to open their own shops and, you know, open their own Mr. Lubes and all that kind of stuff. But we just, we just won't have that anymore. And that feeling of knowing, okay, I can fix this thing if it breaks, right? I have the parts, I got the manuals, I can go pick it up and I could do this. And that feeling of knowing that you can almost take something apart and put it back together. That's how a lot of people in tech got their start. If you listen to Steve Wozniak, uh, who is known as the wizard, who was one of the founding, uh, one of the founding fathers of, uh, I guess you could say that the, um, um, the tech world. I don't know if I want to use the word the tech world, but Silicon Valley, he and others of his ilk would just start in their garage, their parents' garages, putting together old PCs and soldering motherboards with circuitry and creating the, the template of what we would build this technological society that we're slowly moving towards. But I think there's, there's another thing too, is that I learned a long time ago that not everybody is on the internet like I am or other people. Not everybody keeps abreast of what's going on in the world through the internet, through YouTube, through Instagram, through Facebook. There's a large part of planet Earth in rural areas as well as areas that don't have even adequate electrical grids, much less to get reliable internet and have access to high-speed wireless internet where they can get information. So not only are we moving so quickly in a direction when it comes to technology, that is, is going to make your head spin. It's leaving people behind by metrics that we can't even calculate. If you're so far behind that you don't even have enough electricity for lights in your house, how are you going to compete in a marketplace where children are learning to code in the first grade? Like it's, it's, it's astonishing. And the ability to not know how the thing that literally almost runs your life, how it works, get in there and check out the black box and see what's happening. That's a little bit frightening. The fact that most people couldn't tell you how their, their, their phone works, who controls the information that's coming in and out of it, it's a little bit frightening, the fact that you could just turn off somebody's whole life. If, if you want to look at the case in point with um, Donald Trump, for example, when he was president of the United States and he incited the January 6th riots against the Capitol because he was pissed off at the, he was pissed off at the results of the 2020 election, claiming that Joe Biden was not the you know, president. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook... And YouTube all got together and said, we are going to, in a sense, cancel you. We're going to muzzle you. Now, just think about that for a second. The most powerful man on the face of the earth by way of military, by the way of, of what kind of um, 
just power America wields and holds. They were able to silence him. They were able to tell him, hey, shut it. <laughs> shut it down. That's an insane amount of power. And they were able to do it. The president of the United States. Now, granted, whatever you think about Donald Trump is besides the point. They were able to tell him, hey, we're going to cancel you. You couldn't do that in Russia. You couldn't do that with Putin. You couldn't do that with Netanyahu in Israel right now as they bombed the hell out of Gaza. You couldn't, you couldn't tell that to um, um, Putin. Sorry, I already mentioned him. Or any one of the other dictators out there. You couldn't do it. You think somebody could shut down the leader of Saudi Arabia? Good luck. You think, you think um, anybody could literally tell the Ayatollah Khomeini or whoever's running Iran right now could say, yeah, we're not, we just don't want you to talk. You, are you kidding me? You find yourself in a, in a river somewhere, which is horrible to say, but so much of this technology, we just don't understand how it works. And so much of it is controlled by people who really don't care about us. They just care about the product. They care about us using it, the attention economy and us, you know, our eyeballs and ears staying glued to their, their, to the screens. These screens that pretty soon we won't even be able to know how it works. And once it stops working, we just have to replace it. Or if we're using it for means other than the company wants, they could just shut it off. And I think that's probably the most frightening part about this. And it, it sounds a little bit more conspiratorial and a little bit more, you know, tin, tin hat. But the fact of the matter is that the things that we use are becoming more and more with uh, more and more out of our grasp to control, to fix, to alter, to to make our own. And I hate to almost quote this, but that 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 old quote that you will own nothing and be happy. I mean, think about it. I mean, you stream most of your movies. If you, if you subscribe to a service, you subscribe to Netflix or Disney Plus or to any one of the number of streaming services, you listen to your music through Spotify or through Apple Music, you might even watch most of your movies through a lot of these apps and a lot of these, these things as well. Your, your food might be delivered through, um, what's a, what's a, there's a lot of food services out there, um, Fresh something or other, I, I forget the name of it, but there's a lot of these companies that you saw during the pandemic that were used by necessity, and now the food delivery services are quite popular. You have Uber for your transportation needs. If you don't have a vehicle, you don't have a car, and you can just call one up and kind of utilize it that way. Airbnb for when you're traveling. But as far as books go, I mean, if you have a Kindle or you download your movies or content from Amazon. The crazy thing is if you stop using Amazon, you don't get to keep the, that, that material. This, I just learned this a few months ago that if you have an Amazon account and you have X amount of movies on your account there, once you stop using that service, they maintain the rights to keep that stuff. So really you have to keep paying for the service. 
Now, I know with certain um, technologies out there that might may or may not be on the up and up, you can download a lot of stuff and you have it on a hard drive and you could use it whenever you want. But for the most part, a lot of these services do not allow that. And so here we are. We're in this space where the services and the technology that we use are, are coming more and more out of our own hands. And it's going to be up to us to say, look, we love convenience, but the ability to own what you purchase, what's in your hand, what's in your back pocket, the, the TV that you have in your, in your den, the computer that you have in your office, and the phone that you have that never leaves your side. We have to be able to say, if we purchase this, we should be able to use it however we please. Now, let's be clear. I'm not advocating that people be able to use the technology to hurt people. ChatGPT, uh, the third version, I think, has some safeties in place that you can't look up how to you know, create a, a, a chemical bomb. They have certain... Um, systems, you know, stop that, or how to, how to cheat uh, at blackjack. You know, there's certain things that they, they're saying, hey, you, you can use this technology, but you can't use it for that. And I think the phones are the same. The fact that we keep so much information on our phones, you, you know, there have to be some, I guess you could say stipulations or some sort of, some sort of fences put around this stuff so we're not out there using it to to cause mass destruction however there needs to be a balance where clients and people who want to use this technology finally say look I don't want to continue to pay for something I, I purchased five six years ago with a subscription fee that charges me to use the bat like the radio on this phone or, or my, in my car. Just the ability to say, hey, you know what? Like, people should have what they've purchased as their own. And regardless of how we feel, we have to fight for that. And I think it, it's going to get pretty pretty nasty because there's people who, who don't mind. Because it's convenient. Because if you think about it, the headaches that it takes, I've... Uh, I've had numerous instances where I wanted to blow up my old car that it's, it's gone now that, um, trying to fix certain things that went wrong on it towards, uh, the latter part of me owning it, uh, replacing batteries was never a big deal or, um, replacing like the headlights or the, the turning signal lights in the back or even just, uh, the air filter you know, or the air intake or the spark plugs, stuff like that was pretty simple and easy, but getting underneath the car to try and fix the catalytic converter, which would, would have required me welding is just, you know, it's just too much. And that's where we got to fight the convenience of it. That feeling that, Hey, this is a lot less of a headache. I'll just let somebody else do it. You know what? I don't need all these discs in my, in my house. I'll just stream movies. I don't want to be bothered with CDs. Like, who, who the hell has CDs anymore? Or records. They just take up a lot of space. I'm just going to stream. I'll have it on, a, on my phone. I'll have it on my device. I'm good. I don't need a car. 
cars are messy. I got to pay insurance. I got to pay registration. I got to pay upkeep. I got to pay gas. F it. I'll just, I'll just Uber take, take a car service, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I do believe there's something to be said for having ownership and autonomy. And if I may be so bold, it, it's, it's a way to protect democracy in a, in a way, because the more control that's handed over to larger corporations, be it Apple, be it Microsoft, be it uh, Google, be it any one of the fangs, the tech companies they're called, you know, uh, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Twitter, whomever else is holding that, that information and holding that, that, uh, that sway over us. Just think, for example, what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And however you fall on the, on the conflict, it's horrible either way. It's terrible. The death that's mounting and it's, that's taking place there is atrocious. Is, is there's, no, there's not enough words in the English language to describe how horrible um, what Hamas did to these you know, just innocent souls that were killed on October the 7th. And to see the carnage that's being waged against the, the Palestinian people now is, is heartbreaking. The, the people who are innocent, not, not the people who caused the, um, the harm. See, you know, and, and because of this, people are trying to report this stuff. But a lot of the networks are controlled by people who have vested interests in other things than people's safety and peace. And so it's very easy for them to just shut that down. You know, you're talking out of turn. You're saying stuff against a political candidate that, hey, you know what? We really like this guy. We're just going to just gonna um, turn this off. And again, it's not a conspiracy theory. I'm not trying to claim that there's a cabal out to get us or whatever else, or some horrible anti-Semitic trope about Jews ruling everything. Like, I, that's, that's wrong to say that. You, you shouldn't be... Um, racism, regardless of who it is, is wrong. But the mere fact that you don't have more control over our means of communication, our means of entertainment, what we listen to, how we listen to it, who we choose to can tell us this news and information and how we spread dissent, how we talk about how we just talk in general and the ability to fix, you know, our vehicles and our smart home devices can lead to a lot of bad things, a lot of tyranny. And we just have to be very mindful of that. Right? We don't want to make it so easy to stop people from speaking out and for having dissenting views on various things from healthcare to government to education. And so the more independence you have within the devices that you use, I feel it's just better overall for you. I, I, I don't see how it could be a bad thing, right? So, so yeah, that, that's kind of what I wanted to touch on there. You know, um, I was feeling a little bit nostalgic with my, my car. Uh, being gone, it, it took me, you know, um, a lot of great memories with it. But just like anything, we got to upgrade the apparatus. We got to move on, right? And yeah, so hopefully this was something, you know, I mean, I rambled on for 40 plus odd minutes, but hopefully this is something that just gave you some, you know, just a little glimpse into uh, what was rattling around in the old noggin over there. But 
I want to thank you once again for listening. Uh, like I said before, you can find the Marketplace of Ideas podcast wherever you get your podcast from Google Play to Podbean to um, iTunes. Excuse me. You name it, you can find us there. So until next time, take care, be good to one another, and have a better day. Peace. <laughs>